Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us today. It's going to be an awesome ride down under. (laughs) Not downtown, but down under. That's right. So a shout out to our Australian listeners in Victoria and New South Wales. This one's for you, so I hope I do it justice. And no, this is not a case about how a dingo got my baby. Oh, that is the case that we should have covered last week when we were at the live event talking about animal rescues. That is true, because I don't know if a lot of people know that the saying, a dingo got my baby, is actually from a real case that had happened. And it turned out the dingo was the murderer. That's right. It wasn't the mom. (laughs) This one time. (laughs) Just the one time. That's right. Yeah. We covered a lot of cases about how dogs were the rescuers or the heroes in the story, but this one would have been a nice contrast to cover how the dingo was the murderer. (laughs) Good versus evil in the canines. (laughs) But no, it's not about how a dingo got my baby. But it is about the first woman in Australian history to receive a sentence of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Ooh, she must have done something really bad to get that. Oh, she did. Let's just say that she could be a protege of Hannibal Lecter himself. Oh, no. So it's not Silence of the Lambs, but Silence of the Koalas. That's right. (laughs) That's what we're doing right here on Buried Motives. Oh, no. So to our Australian listeners, we would love to hear your comments on our Facebook page about how well known this case still is in Australia. So search us up on Facebook at Buried Motives. We'd love to hear from you. So if you haven't guessed it, today we are going to be discussing the case of Catherine Knight, a truly psychotic and evil female dirtbag. Hang on to your seats, boys and girls, because today is going to be a bumpy ride. Oh no. I do feel that, however, I should give one blanket warning before we start. Oh, is it going to be another totally gruesome case like your last one? Well, it is. But my blanket warning is this. I may or may not insert some Australian slang into my case today. (gasps) Crikey! That's about the only one I know. (laughs) Exactly. Not to make light of anything, but it was an opportunity I just couldn't resist. My husband actually lived in Australia for two years when he was younger, and I always found the slang awesome. Okay, I'm excited to hear some of these words. All right, are you buckled up and ready to go? Ready for this story. Okay. So Catherine Mary Knight was born 30 minutes after her twin sister Joy in Tenterfield, Australia, a small town in New South Wales on October 24th, 1955. I actually love stories with twins in them. Yeah. Did her sister turn out just as messed up? This whole family is messed up. Okay, Mm -hmm. let's hear it. But nobody as messed up as Catherine Knight. She was born to Barbara and Ken Knight. And this totally made me laugh because I went to Barbie and Ken. Ken. (laughs) What are your parents' names? Barbie and Ken. I love it. I was a big Barbie girl when I was younger. I want to give you a quick family history, though, before we get into it, just so you kind of understand her family dynamic. So her mother had originally been married to a man named Jack Rogan. They had four sons together. While married to Jack, her mother, Barbara, began to have an affair with Ken Knight. Ken was a co-worker and friend of her husband's. They worked together at the local abattoir, which is a slaughterhouse. Oh, we have to always watch out for the best friend. So she was married, messing around with the best friend. Both families were well-known in the area, and the affair caused quite the commotion. It was a conservative area at the time, so this was major scandal. <gasps> this caused Barbara and Ken to leave town and move to Moree. However, they didn't take any of Barbara's four sons with them. The two older ones stayed to live with their father, and the younger two were raised by an aunt in Sydney. Oh, so she's just left behind her kids? All four boys. Ouch. That's so tragic when a mother leaves a family like that. It does such damage. It really does, and it's just the beginning. Barbara and Ken also had four children together, so her mom actually gave birth to eight children altogether. Two girls and two boys, so seven Seven siblings for Catherine in total. When Catherine was four years old, Jack, her mom's first husband, died, and the two boys that were living with him came to live with them. So now they had six kids in the house. Six kids, yeah. So you're following, understanding her childhood so far? Yep. <laughs> okay, I know it's a little bit of a lot. Is that, can you it's say a that? little bit of it's a lot. It's a little bit of a lot. 
it's, how would you say that? It is a little bit of a lot. Because it's not a lot, a lot, but it's just a little bit lot. <laughs> I'm standing by it. <laughs> it's a little bit of a lot. I like it. Okay. That's going to be my new slogan. <laughs> a I'm little a little bit, bit of a lot. <laughs> it's like saying you're a little bit overwhelmed. Yeah. Right? It's an oxymoron, maybe, but I feel like it works. And no, that's not Australian slang. <laughs> you heard it first on Barry Motives. We're going to hashtag it now. That's right. A little bit of a lot. <laughs> it's a little bit of a lot. That's a good merch slogan. So to say she was born into a dysfunctional family would be a gross understatement. Catherine's father was a terrible alcoholic and she would get beatings from both of her parents. Her father would use violence and intimidation to get what he wanted. That's so sad. He would openly rape his wife, Barbara, sometimes even in front of the kids. What? Reportedly up to 10 times a day. No. Seriously. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. It is a miracle that she did not have more children. Yeah. Well, she had eight. Oh, that is horrific. Isn't that terrible? And the 10 kids, times? Up to 10 times a day. And while the kids would witness this, it was just wherever she was, it didn't matter if the kids were around. If he wanted it, he took it. Oh my goodness. He has some issues oh yeah very violent and some stamina <laughs> true <laughs> and that's gonna actually play into our oh really that's yeah. not something you're gonna cut out then <laughs> <laughs> well just maybe Catherine's expectations sexually oh just wait we're gonna get there that is actually a totally interesting mm -hmm. take on it because if that's what she's seeing her parents do that's gonna become her sense of normal mm -hmm. oh incredible this is what should be happening yeah it is noted that barbara was tough as nails and would hold her own as best that she could she was was really good at fighting back and Catherine would learn that as well so when she's being raped by her husband because that's what it was she would she give up was a good fighting, fight she was fighting back she would give up a good fight but she did kind of contradict herself later because Barbara would tell Catherine the intimate details of her sex life and say how much she hated sex and men however she would also later tell Catherine to put up with whatever men wanted sexually and to stop complaining about it but was that being protective and be like I always fought it and so I got beat more I don't know and so maybe you should just put up with it Possibly. I just felt like we needed to reflect for a moment on how horrible that was. That she's is She's seen awful. her mom get raped. Her mom is sharing all these intimate details with her, telling her how much she hates sex and men, but then on the other hand, also telling her to do whatever a man wants sexually. That's messed up. Catherine would also endure sexual abuse from multiple family members. There is debate if her father sexually abused her, but it is believed that one or two of her brothers did. Well, if that's what they were viewing, it would just be the norm yeah. of if you were feeling horny, you'd just do something about it. Right? So you can imagine what this house was like to grow up in. Wow. The abuse continued until around age 11. That's what's recorded. But I have a hard time believing that it didn't carry on past that time. It just magically shut off at age 11. Yeah, I don't believe it. But that is what I found reported. Okay. Growing up, Catherine was only close to her twin sister and one uncle who was a champion horseman, but unfortunately committed suicide in 1969. Catherine was devastated and maintains to this day that his ghost comes and visits her. <laughs> there you go. A little spooky spoo. <laughs> You can't see my eyes, but they are very big. <laughs> Melissa hates it when we talk about hauntings. <laughs> I'm like, meh. <laughs> it is actually kind of funny. When we get to the really gruesome parts, I was eating an apple during it. And I was like, what is wrong with me that I can just like type out all this stuff about these gruesome details and be eating at the same time? You need more connection in your life. Christy. I probably do. <laughs> Give me a hug. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A psychologist explains that because Catherine's needs were not met as a child, that she was unable to develop full ranges of emotions like love, happiness, joy, and empathy. Something had already broken inside of her. They suspected by probably age three even. Oh, absolutely. Those early synapses, they are formed really, really early. They're even looking at new researchers that are actually looking at in utero. Really? Mm -hmm. So Catherine is definitely a case of both nature versus nurture. And I just finished watching this documentary on psychopaths. And surprisingly, there is way more psychopaths among us than we think that there are, but not all of them develop into monsters like Catherine. That's right. It's so true that there are lots of people out there that would technically be classified a psychopath just because of their inability to cope with things or the way that they are coping with things. But not all of them go on to murder people. Right. Very few of them actually develop a bloodlust. And yeah. it was interesting because one of the experts on this documentary that I watched was a psychopath himself. He's developed some coping mechanisms that allow 
him to function. Right. I just found that that was interesting because when we think of a psychopath, we automatically think evil, dirtbag, and that's not always the case. Not at all. But it is the case with Catherine. In school, Catherine would not make friends. She had a horrible temper. She could fly off the handle at a moment's notice, and she was very shy and had no confidence. Although she was described as happy and friendly when she was in a good mood. So often this is because those kiddos have a huge threat bias in their brain. So those areas of the brain that interpret whether they should be afraid of something or whether they can form an attachment with it are so messed up from those early abuses that if somebody were to approach one of us, they would come up with their hand out. We would be like, oh, they want to shake our hand. But because their threat bias is so big in their brain that they automatically think that they're going to be hurt. And so instead of waiting for that hurt to happen, they strike out. And so you end up with these kids that are always hitting and misbehaving and not doing what they should be doing. And it's because they can't actually process that somebody's not going to harm them. And the entire family was rough and violent like this. There was a report once where her and her sister were fighting about whose turn it was to ride the bike home from school. They had one bike to share. And the person who had witnessed it commented about how, you know, normal girls would just fight, maybe push, but they were full on fist fight brawl over who got to ride the bike home. (laughs) They were tomboys. They were. They were all tough as nails. But that makes sense if they have all brothers. That's true. She attended Musselbrook High School and became a bully, to the point of even assaulting a boy at school with a weapon. By the time Catherine was 15, she dropped out of school. She could barely read or write at this point. She got a job at a clothing factory cutting fabric, but around a year later, she landed her dream job at the local Aberdeen abattoir, cutting up offal, which is animal organ meat. Yeah. She was following in her father's footsteps by working in the slaughterhouse. It was the only place she'd ever wanted to work. It was kind of a family profession. Her grandfather had worked there along with her brothers. Oh. So when I was a teenager, I actually did like a couple of shifts at a slaughterhouse to see if like I would like it. And I was learning my anatomy. So it was oh, right okay. as yeah. I was going into nursing. And it was a fascinating way to learn your anatomy. Oh, I Like I didn't it find it gross at all. It was amazing. Wow. I'm going to be looking <laughs> at you a little differently. I'm not Catherine day. Knight, but... <laughs> But I think a lot of people have like this negative connotation about the slaughterhouse and it's actually an interesting place to work. Yeah. Workers said that they would find Catherine watching the pigs at the abattoir getting their throats cut, but that they thought she was just interested in checking out the other areas of the job. She would also cut the arteries of the animals' carcasses to watch them bleed out. So people started to think that she enjoyed her job a little bit too much. Because she was far from being a bludger, Catherine quickly was promoted to boning the animals. And bludger is an Australian slang for someone who is lazy and lazy she was not. So there, there's your first slang word. Oh, I was thinking that when you said bludger, I was envisioning like, you know how you bludgeon somebody? Down? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> bludger, not bludgeon. bludgeon. So she probably would have enjoyed that job. That Well, that's why I thought you were leaving with it. <laughs> no, she was far from being a bludger. So she oh. was promoted to boning the animals. Oh, so she was not lazy. She was not lazy. As part of the promotion, Catherine was given her own set of butcher knives that she held as one of her most prized possessions right up until the day she was incarcerated. Because she had earned them. She had. And at home, she stored her knives on the wall above her bed. What? Yeah. When asked about it, she said, quote, they would always be handy if I needed them. And there's videos, there's pictures of it where she has it right above her headboard against the wall where she could just pull out any knife as she needed it. That's so dangerous. Yeah. And she would take them wherever she went. But at the end of the day, it got hung up by her bed. And not just one, but a whole set. A whole set. Like a butchering knife set. Like what a professional chef would have or I guess a professional meat cutter. So there would be specific ones for boning and all that kind of stuff like what happens if you're never mind (laughs) if you hit the headboard too hard I don't know. You gotta be careful, I guess. Oh my god, That's just so dangerous. Yep. But these were her prized possessions. And so she carried it everywhere. And she, she just wanted to keep them close. Yeah. And if she comes from this family of all these boys, and so she's made it in their profession, she's gotten promoted. She probably feels really proud of herself. Mm-hmm. And it would be something that she could be proud of because this family probably doesn't have a great history in the community. No, they don't. Yeah. Catherine at this point was already a psychopath with bloodlust and working at the abattoir helped quench this thirst for her. She loved it. I did not have a bloodlust when I worked there just so we're setting the record straight yeah (laughs) I found it fascinating (laughs) Catherine was a tall redhead and had no trouble attracting men she was a Sheila the blokes wanted to get to know and so Sheila means woman and bloke means man sorry I just can't help myself 
And I asked my husband, because I've heard blokes before, like or a yeah. bloke, but I had never heard Sheila. And so do people actually use he it? He said, or? yeah. When oh, he lived really? there, he's like, oh yeah, they would use the word Sheila for like how we would say a girl or a lady or whatever. Oh. And is that what's on their like restroom doors then? Or their bathroom doors? Oh, I don't know about that. This is a slang word, so I'm not sure. But sometimes you see here, like they'll do like guys and gals. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. But anyway, she looked like a regular sweet woman, but looks can be deceiving. The first romantic partner in her life was David Collette or Shorty. He was a rough and tough character. He drank hard and fought even harder. He also worked at the abattoir and was friends with Catherine's brothers. When he would get into a fight, Catherine would join in with her fist to help him. She was strong and just as tough as her mom. <laughs> when I heard that, I was like, wow, Catherine, she's just like this wiry, energetic, crazy lady. And her husband was quite a bit shorter. Oh, spoiler alert. In 1974, they get married. <laughs> That was literally my next thing to say. But he was quite a bit shorter than her. Yeah. And so, yeah, if he got into a fight, she just joined right in. I got you, babe. <laughs> She's just protecting her man. <laughs> yeah. Barbara, Catherine's mom, told David when they were getting married to watch out. She said to him, quote, you better watch this one or she'll effing kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're effed. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll effing kill you. So nice words from the mother of the bride. Welcome to our family. That's right. She's warning him. I'm wondering if... She she was warning him to be like, you better actually watch out for my daughter. Or if she was warning him to be like, don't mess with her or right. she'll take care of you. So like if she was trying to do it in a protective mode kind of Maybe, thing. Maybe because the term ever think of playing up on her means like cheating on her. Yeah. So could have been, could have been, it was probably a little bit of both to be honest. Hmm. And it only took the first day of their marriage for David to realize that his mother-in-law was not lying regarding what she said to him about his new bride. Oh no, day one? Day one. Like marriage day. Oh, wow. On their wedding night, Catherine tried to strangle David to death because he fell asleep after only having sex a couple of times. What? Yeah. And this well, goes back to what we were talking about, like the example that she had. And she had heard that you should have sex five or six times on your wedding night. And he conked out after just a couple. Well, was she thinking after she strangled him that he would have sex more times? Like, where was... No, she was ready to... I'm done with him. Oh, need a new husband. That one was only like, good she for was, two times. She was for real strangling him. Wow. Yeah. So he woke up to her sitting on his chest trying to strangle him. So she's not one that you want to let down in expectations. No. He did not hold up his end of the bargain. <laughs> So needless to say, Catherine and David's relationship would prove to be a violent and a volatile one. There are many accounts of violence recorded, but I will share just some of them. Unless we were going to do a 10-parter on this lady. <laughs> I just find it so fascinating that like, if you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall, bat crap crazy. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But by talking about her childhood and her first few relationships, there's actually four relationships till we, the last one will be the fourth relationship that yeah. we're going to discuss. You can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her. Wow. Which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Yeah. David drove truck for a living and Catherine often accused him of having a girl at every port. And it was reported that he did in fact have affairs. After accusing him of having an affair, he awoke one morning to Catherine sitting on his chest and holding a knife to his throat just to let him know how easily she could kill him. Oh. Good morning, sweetheart. <laughs> how wow. would you like your eggs? And by the way, <laughs> you step out on me and you're dead. And he stayed with her longer? Oh, yeah. That would have been my exit point to being like, come out of here. Yep. And I'm going to talk in a little bit about why all these men stayed. <laughs> In 1976, soon before the birth of their first daughter, Catherine threw all of David's clothes and shoes into the bathtub and lit them on fire. <laughs> I thought you were going to say she like threw them out the window or something. Oh, into the bathtub and lit them on fire. Like he's not just picking them up off the lawn. <laughs> what did he do to deserve I'll it? I'll tell you. But first of all, when he got home, so first she throws all his clothes and his shoes in the tub, lights them on fire. And then when he got home, she was waiting. She struck him on the back of his head with a frying pan, almost killing him. All because he arrived home late from playing darts in a competition. He was late because they reached the finals. Oh, what happened to her backing him up? Like she used to go out and fight for him and now she's not even showing up at his dart matches. I don't know. This was right before she was about to give birth. It was right before the birth of her baby. Oh. She's pregnant. She's waiting at home for him and he was late. Those hormones. And she thinks he's having affairs. So who knows what's going through her mind? Yeah. David actually had to run to a neighbor's house for help and was hospitalized for a severely fractured skull. She fractured his skull. She fractured skull. his skull. She was a toughie. Wow. So the movie Tangled was right. Frying right. pants are dangerous. They are. But with Catherine, anything is dangerous. 
Although David would describe her as unpredictably violent, Catherine talked him into not pressing charges. However, in May of 1976, soon after their daughter was born, David left Catherine for another woman and moved to Queensland. The next day, Catherine was seen walking down the main street, violently pushing her baby's pram from side to side as she walked. Spectators thought she might push the pram right into the traffic. Catherine was admitted to the St. Elmo's Hospital and treated for postnatal depression and given antidepressants. Several weeks later, she was released but had obviously not recovered. She took her 12-week-old baby girl and set her on the railroad tracks just prior to when the train was scheduled to arrive. What? It was a close call. Who got her off the tracks? Well, the baby was rescued by an elderly man just in the nick of time, like just moments before the train got there. They didn't give her back that baby, did they? They do. What? Yep. That day's not even over yet. So she does this with her baby, puts her on the tracks, and then she proceeds to steal an axe and started wildly waving it around and threatening to kill multiple people. So she's doing this in the public. And she gets her baby back after all this. Yep. She never has any of her children taken away. And so the people didn't think that these children were in danger. I don't know. I don't know if it was just the time. I don't know. This was 70s, I guess. Wow. Not that I'm like, uh, everybody should have their children taken away, but... But when you're leaving your 12-week-old baby on a railroad track, when you know the train is right about to come, yeah. And somebody else is like having to race to save them? Yeah, this elderly man caught her just in the nick of time. But she went into a treatment center then, right? Yeah, okay. because she'd just gotten out of one. Yeah, but she goes back in? Yeah, so she was apprehended and once again sent back to St. Elmo's Hospital, but she signed herself out the very next day they let her leave. No! Mm -hmm. So a few days later, Catherine tried to force a woman to drive her to Queensland so that she could find David. She had slashed the woman in the face with one of her knives, but the woman was able to escape at a gas station and alert the coppers. And the coppers? coppers mean? <laughs> That's slang for police, and I love it. <laughs> the coppers. The coppers are coming. So I'm going to use that a few times in here. <laughs> when the police arrived, Catherine had grabbed a young boy and was holding him hostage with a knife and swinging a big metal rod around. Police attacked her with brooms, and she was admitted to the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. And I guess it took two police and the gas station attendant to subdue her. She's lucky they didn't bring out the fire hose on her. Maybe they should have. (laughs) Catherine told the nurses at the hospital that she had stopped at the gas station to kill the mechanic that worked there because he was the one who had fixed David's car, which gave him means to leave her. Oh, wow. That's a lot of dots to connect in between. Oh, yeah. She was just on a rampage of vengeance. Yeah. Like, that's not a direct line. Like, you caused him to do this kind of thing. No, but because you fixed his car and that's why he was able to leave me, you're dead. Wow. So you did not cross Catherine's path in any sense of the word. No. And anybody, like, even remotely around her connected to her, she could probably find reason. Oh, exactly. You know the term, like, walking on eggshells? (laughs) You don't even walk. (laughs) You just stand still. (laughs) Don't look. Don't make eye contact. That's right. Because she would have been able to find any reason to kill people for sure and this is what makes her so dangerous so her plan was to kill the mechanic and then carry on to queensland and kill david along with his mother that was her plan why his mother because she knew that would hurt david oh so when david heard about all of this he left queensland to be with his mother and to try and help Catherine. so he left his girlfriend who was pregnant at the time in queensland and goes to her rescue this is so messed up Catherine was released on august 9th 1976 into the care of her mother-in-law along with david They moved to Ipswich, west of Brisbane, where she found a job at the Dinmore Meatpacking Plant. David's mother talked about how one time Catherine saved David's life from Barbara, Catherine's mother, by hitting her over the head to stop her from attacking him. So violence definitely ran in the family. Anybody who thought their in-laws were bad needs to come check out this story. That's right. You don't cross Barbara. In 1979, David caught Catherine having an affair, but he (gasps) stayed with her. And I wondered if he was just scared to leave. He tried that once before. Whatever happened to his girlfriend and that baby? He left her. He left her in Queensland. And he came back to the crazy one. Yeah. Because he was probably too afraid to leave. Probably. And I don't know if he had contact with that one. He might have done child support and taken care of that baby. I won't say he didn't, but there was just nothing about it. In March of 1980, the couple's second daughter was born. There are reports that Catherine's violence did extend to her children. David's sister said that one time she found Catherine holding her daughter under hot running water. Oh no. A year after their second daughter was born, Catherine lost interest and simply left David. And honestly, this was literally his saving grace. 
So you couldn't leave her, but she could leave you. And just lost interest. It was like, yep. after she's fighting done. for him and willing to kill people for him. Yep. So after like, her yeah. second daughter was born, she's like, okay, peace out. I'm gone. Did she leave the kids with him? No. Oh, damn. No, she took her girls. And she was a spitfire not to be messed with. So David obviously let her take the girls. After leaving David, Catherine moved around a bit, but ended up back in Aberdeen. Okay, so we're on to number two. Victim number two. In 1987, Catherine would become involved with another David, David (laughs) Saunders. So I will call him Saunders to make it less confusing. Okay. Saunders moved in with Catherine and her two daughters rather quickly, but didn't get rid of his own apartment that he had been renting. This infuriated Catherine because she assumed he'd be having affairs there. Because that's what she would have done. Exactly. In 1988, the couple had a daughter together. So baby number three now. Catherine decorated her home with animal skins and heads, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, boots, weapons, and even farm equipment. She even had some of these items on the ceiling. She basically just enjoyed shocking people. So it sounds like it was pretty bogan. Bogan. (laughs) Okay, what does bogan mean? It means redneck. (laughs) I've been in a couple houses like this. Bogan house. <laughs> but it was really dark. She had all these animal carcasses everywhere and she was into like horror movies and she'd have stuff about that all out. With her three little children. Yeah, with her three little girls. And I saw videos and pictures of it and literally like rakes and farm stuff and animal traps like up on the ceiling, on the walls. It was just covered. It's an interesting decorating style. There was a psychologist that was kind of dissecting her that I had watched a documentary on and they had talked about part of it was because she just really liked it. But the other part was she liked to scare and shock people. Mm. She liked it when someone came into her house and was freaked out about it. Saunders was described as a nice guy, but Catherine claimed he was abusive towards her and took out apprehended violence orders against him which is like a restraining order she claimed this as well with her husband david and her future partners saunders kept trying to leave her but to no avail one time Catherine stabbed saunders in the right side of his stomach with scissors and also cut up all of his clothes leaving him only the clothing he was wearing at the time he was too fearful to leave her right he kept okay. trying to and then that's probably what got him stabbed with the scissors or what got all his clothes cut up and violence against men is not really reported it's not given the attention that it should and i do bring up that later in okay. our case During another attack, Catherine hit Saunders in the face with a hot iron. It scalded him and left an iron pattern on his face for weeks. She continued to swing the iron around by the cord, trying to crush his head because he was late getting home. Oh no. You needed to be punctual when it came to Catherine. (laughs) Okay, this one's a bad one. Catherine said one time Saunders kicked her in the stomach when she thought she might be pregnant. So she went into the backyard and slit the throat of his eight-week-old dingo puppy while he watched. (gasps) No. She wanted to teach him a lesson. So we've ticked off abuse in childhood, arson, and now cruelty against animals. Yep. Oh, yeah. She's a classic case. Catherine would go to her sister Joy's house next to tell her that she killed Saunders, even though she hadn't, just to see her reaction. Wow. How did her sister react? There was no recording of how she reacted. I'm sure as a regular person would react if your sister shows up and says, I just killed Saunders. But do you think she was like so used to Catherine's weird and wacky behavior that she's like, oh yeah, right. Well, no, I think they would have taken her seriously. And I partly think that maybe Catherine was wanting to see her reaction because if she was thinking of killing Saunders, what's her reaction going to be? If I actually do it, can I go to my sister? Oh, so she was what I thought maybe testing the waters. Yeah, maybe possibly. Who can I count on for an alibi? Right. And her sister's the only person left in her life that she's close to. Because where's her mom at this time? Well, she's not close with her mom. Okay. Just like with David Collette, Catherine would prove to abuse and torture David Saunders. Before eventually breaking up with Saunders, Catherine allegedly damaged his car and then took an overdose of sleeping pills. She once again was temporarily admitted to a psychiatric hospital. Okay, so we're going to move on to guy number three. Victim number three. Mambo number five. (laughs) We're only going to get to Mambo number four. This one, I'm just going to share just a few quick things about this one. So in May of 1990, Catherine found herself another bloke, recovering alcoholic John Chillingworth. They had a son together the following year. So now she has three girls and a boy. Does she treat the son any differently than the girls? There's no report if she does or doesn't. Mm. I think the only thing I heard is that she was abusive to her children. So probably not. And she doesn't really like men. So maybe the boy got it worse. John admitted to hitting Catherine once after she had smacked the glasses from his face and broke his false teeth while still in his mouth. Oh, So he's like, yeah, I did hit her, but this is why. The relationship was as volatile and violent as the previous ones. 
The relationship ended by December of 1993. So only like three years were they together. Some of the men who were in relationships with Catherine were asked why they stayed with her. And it wasn't because they were drongos, which means fools. (laughs) It was apparently because the sex with Catherine was incredibly good. (gasps) That's why they stayed. Yep. So wild on the streets and in the sheets. (laughs) So I guess you could say Catherine was a definite root rat. What is that? Someone who enjoys sex. Oh. I don't even know the Canadian slang for a lot of things. So you're really messing me up with the Australian stuff. And this is just what I found on Google. Maybe oh. our Australian listeners can let me know. Like, maybe they don't say these things anymore. Oh. So you had asked, like, why are these guys staying with her? Yeah. They all said she was incredibly good in bed. Because at first I thought, well, maybe it's because they're embarrassed. They're men, you know, to admit yeah. about the abuse and that kind of stuff. But if they all said it, it must have been true. Wow. Before Catherine left John, she was already in a new relationship with another John, a man named (laughs) John Charles Thomas Price or Pricey, which is what I will call him. So two Davids and two Johns. So she didn't have to worry about saying the wrong name very much. (laughs) As I was researching, I was like, okay, David. And then I was like, oh, wait, this one's David. And then, okay, John, good. It's not another David. But then, oh, the fourth one is John. (laughs) So his friends all called him Pricey, this John. And so that's what I'm going to call him is Pricey. Okay. So we had Shorty and then Saunders and then John. And now we have Pricey. That's right. Or just if you say David or John, you probably got it right. One of them. <laughs> well, I wonder <laughs> what a 50 50 chance of getting the right name. I wonder what her brother's names were if they were John and David. Oh, yeah. I don't know. The only <laughs> name I could find was her sister for the sibling because yeah. she was her twin. I hope not. That's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> was, she, was she just picking men because of their association with their names? I don't think so. It, they did say that she definitely had a type. These guys were all like country boys they were tough they were rough they were you know could hold their own she liked that well they would have to against her oh heck yeah victim number four pricey was described as a terrific hard-working guy who enjoyed the occasional twoies new which is a popular australian beer <laughs> and i asked my husband i'm like is that really and he's like oh yeah people would carry it by the case twoies new twoies new yeah a cold one Pricey had three children of his own from a previous relationship. The youngest lived with his ex-wife and the older two children lived with him. All four of Catherine's children were living with her. Pricey would be the last man that Catherine would be able to abuse and torment. Pricey was aware of Catherine's temper, but things started out not too badly. Pricey's children said that they even liked her. His nickname for her was the Speckled Hen. One of Pricey's children did note that while driving, Catherine would swerve to try and hit any dogs near the road. (gasps) Oh, that is awful. She just said, I don't really like dogs. And so she would swerve and try to hit them. Maybe that's why she killed her first husband's dog. Oh, she had no problem doing that. That was to teach him a lesson. She loved the dramatics, right? And so slitting this new puppy's throat. And she's actually, in her interview, she says, well, they said it was a clean cut. So you should be congratulating me on my technique. Exactly. She was skilled. She was a skilled knife woman. That is a little bit scary. If that's a word. By 1995, Catherine practically moved in with Pricey and was insisting that they get married, but he kept refusing, causing many fights between them. To get revenge on Pricey for not marrying her, Catherine made a video recording of a first aid kit inside Pricey's home that he had taken home from work and showed it to his boss. The kit was worth around $20 and had expired, so Pricey took it home since it would be thrown in the trash anyway. But because of company policy, this would end up getting Pricey fired from his high-paying job at the local mines that he had held for 17 years. So dirtbag move. Wow. Okay. Wow on so many different levels. So why would you be fired over such a little thing if you had 17 years of good reputation there? It was company policy. They were not allowed to take, even if it was going to go in the garbage, it should have went in the garbage. He took it home. So that was considered theft. And the consequence of that was automatic dismissal. It sounds like the boss like had no choice. It was company policy. He had to get fired after 17 years. And it was a good job. He was hardworking. Everyone talks about what a hard worker he was. So she tattletailed on him and then expected that to somehow encourage him to marry her faster. Right. She's just totally trying to intimidate him. Yeah, she's trying to bully him him into into marrying her. Well, it worked on the schoolyard, so why not now? Right. Run, Pricey, run. Yeah. But Pricey was so angry over this that he kicked Catherine out of his house. Good for him. Mm -hmm. The news of what happened started to travel around town. Pricey never let Catherine move back into his house, but he did get back together with her a few months later. Oh. When they got back together, Catherine said to her daughter that she told Pricey that, quote, if he took me back this time, it was to the death. She also told her daughter, quote, if I kill Pricey, I'll kill myself after it. What an awful thing to tell your children. Yeah. So obviously some clear premeditation here. 
Their fighting would become more and more frequent, and Pricey's mates, or friends, were worried about him. Some refused to hang out with him even until he would break up with her. Well, they are probably worried that she would come after them. If his mates were going to say anything bad against her, they would be in her target. Probably. And I think they just wanted him to break up with her so much that they're like, dude, we're not hanging out. Or mate, we're not hanging out (laughs) until you break up with her. During an argument, Catherine slashed Pricey on the left chest with a knife deep enough to cause scarring. Catherine began to privately as well as publicly threaten Pricey's life. She reportedly told her brother, quote, I'm going to kill Pricey and I'm going to get away with it. I'll get away with it because I'll make out I'm mad. So she's already saying I'm just going to make it look like I've gone insane and I won't get sent to jail. So, yeah. She's had this run in with going to the psychiatric hospitals and she's always been released or just left on her own anyway. It's been an excuse for her to keep her children and to do all those things. So she hasn't really faced any consequence for actually going mad. So why not use that as an excuse? Right. And she's never really been held responsible. She also reportedly threatened to kill his children. Pricey began trying to get Catherine out of his life for good, and this would be the thing that would ultimately cost him his life. How is she not arrested? I don't know. I don't know. Like, how was she able to go on this long if she's making all these threats all around town? Right? People know that she's going to follow through because she's left a baby on the railroad tracks. Yeah. So what you're trying to get at is that a lot of people knew that she was willing to kill him. Oh, yeah. She was talking about it Mm -hmm. and wasn't hiding it. She would threaten him in front of his friends or say these things to her family members about it. Because like you said, she hadn't been held responsible and probably wasn't worried about it. Catherine attempted to persuade Pricey to list her as a beneficiary in his will when she found out that he had left everything to his children. She wanted claim to his house. And if not, she wanted the cash now. What? Yeah. So she's like, well, if you're not going to put me in your will, then give me the cash. (laughs) Total sense of entitlement. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, of course, Pricey flat out refused. And Catherine responded by saying, quote, you'll never get me out of this house. I'll do you in first. And this one she did say in front of a friend. Wow. On Sunday, February 27th, 2000, there was an altercation between Pricey and Catherine and the coppers were called. Pricey admitted to assaulting her because she had grabbed a butcher's knife and was intending to use it on him. He had to flee to a neighbor's house for safety. Pricey asked the police to remove Catherine from his home because he wanted to end the relationship. They told him that he would have to use court proceedings to get her out despite him expressing his concerns for his life. After the altercation, Catherine made a point of showing everyone, including a doctor, her bruises caused by Pricey. She wanted it documented so she could look like the victim, even though she was clearly the aggressor. Oh, wow. The day after the altercation, on Monday, February 28th, 2000, Pricey woke in the early morning hours to see Catherine standing at the foot of his bed with her hands behind her back. He believed she was holding a knife and would have killed him if he hadn't woken up. Pricey told this to his boss when he went to work that morning. The next day, so Tuesday, February 29th, 2000, Pricey went to the courthouse to seek an apprehended violence order against Catherine. He told him about the previous stabbing and that she was threatening to cut off his penis. <laughs> yeah, this is getting serious now. That's what motivated him to go to court. <laughs> He's like, okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, he had asked even like when the police got there, like, I need help. And they were like, well, you have to go to court and it can take a while. He wanted the law to help him keep her away from him and his children because she'd been threatening his children. And he was told it would take about three weeks. So he went to the court and they wouldn't help him right away. They're like, yeah, it'll take about three weeks to process this. That is so unfortunate because people that have been abused, once they step forward, if people don't react at that time when they are seeking help, oftentimes they just give up and think that nobody is going to help them. And so they go back into the relationship. And I thought this is a good place for us to talk about it because it is sad that the men in this story were not given the support that they needed for the domestic violence that they had to endure at the hands of Catherine Knight. Well, we often think that domestic violence just goes one way, right? It's when men are abusing women and for the most part, injuries toward women are usually more substantial, but it doesn't mean that men can't be abused by women. And it actually happens just on a similar level. I think it is sad because we don't talk about it. We don't talk about men being abused and domestic violence towards them. And you're right. Men are stronger generally than women. And so they can leave bigger bruises and Mm -hmm. marks and that kind of stuff. But Catherine had her knives. Like she stabbed all of them, you know, hitting them with frying pans, fracturing their skull, hot iron to the face, all these crazy things that she's doing. And he goes to the court and says she's threatening my life she's threatening my children's life and they're like okay yeah that'll be three weeks because too he's this big burly guy they're like what can a little speckled hen do to you yeah right because she just looks like your regular little housewife looks could be deceiving yep (laughs) when back at work pricey told his co-workers that if he didn't show up for work the next day to call the police because that meant that Catherine had killed him 
Pricey's co-workers pleaded with him not to go home, but he felt like she could hurt his children if he didn't, and he said he'd rather it be him than them. So why not take his children with him? I don't know. This is this whole case is bizarre. Right? On this same day, Catherine went to her sister's house and recorded suspicious messages to her children. She said, quote, I love all my children and I hope to see them again. What did she record them on? On like a video recording. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And the report said it was kind of like a last will and testament yeah. almost. She took one of her daughters and others out for a, quote, special dinner and then left her younger children with that same daughter to spend the night. She said she didn't want to go to her own house and she didn't want the younger kids to come with her to Pricey's. All of these actions indicated that she had been planning to murder Pricey that day. After work, Pricey hung out at a neighbor's and finally went home to bed at 11 p.m. Oh no, he came. he's coming home late. He is coming home late. <laughs> this is the night. This is when it happens. So he went to the courtroom that, that day asking for help. They said no, and this would be his last day. I wonder if the court systems changed the way they process things after this case. I don't know. That would be interesting. Australian listeners, let us know if you know. Once Pricey was asleep, Catherine entered his home. She watched TV for a while and then had a shower. She put on some new black lingerie that she had purchased earlier that day and crawled into Pricey's bed. She woke him up and they proceeded to have sex. <laughs> Obviously, he wasn't that scared then. I don't know. Afterwards, Pricey fell asleep. This is when Catherine would execute her sinister and twisted plan. Police were able to piece together the timeline of events by the analysis of blood at the crime scene. So I'll take you through the gruesome details. So she had exhausted him before the act so that he couldn't fight back as much. <laughs> but I wonder if that was purposeful. Or she wanted one last romp. She was a root rat, remember? Yeah. I'm just <laughs> having a really hard time fathoming that. Yeah. He couldn't resist, though. He wakes up and she's in his bed, this cute, sexy black lingerie. And I don't know. If that has to be your very last act in life, then that's a good one. So maybe it was her parting gift to him. Oh, I'm still stuck on the biology. But if you were that afraid, there's no way that's working for you. She was enticing. She was the reason they all put up with the abuse. Wow. So as 44-year-old John Price lay asleep, defenseless in his bed, Catherine Knight approaches him and stabs him in the front of his body with a butcher's knife. He wakes and first attempts to turn on the lamp on the bedside table next to him. Unable to do so, he gets up and tries to escape. Catherine chases him in the dark from the bedroom down the hallway towards the front door, stabbing him in the back of his body along the way. The bloody handprints along the walls would indicate that as Pricey lost more and more blood, he began to get closer and closer to the floor. Handprints on a light switch would indicate that he made a second attempt to turn on the lights. Pricey miraculously manages to get the front door open and exit the home, but Catherine grabs him and drags him back into his home. <gasps> Those are the drag marks across the carpet. Well, from the, even outside the home. Oh. Yeah. She drags him back. She's like, uh-uh. I find bloodstain analysis so fascinating. Oh, well, you would like the pictures of this case because there's a lot of it to analyze. Once inside, she continues to stab him until he dies. The coroner report would indicate that he was stabbed a total of 37 times. The wounds included injury to the aorta, both lungs, the liver, the stomach, the descending colon, the pancreas, and the left kidney. Blood smearing on the floor indicated that Pricey lay there while bleeding to death. Sometime after Pricey was dead, around 2.30 a.m., Catherine left the house and withdrew $1,000 from his bank account. And the police would never find this money. They don't know what she did with it. <laughs> when she returned, Catherine drug his lifeless body from the hallway and into the lounge room. It was there that she used her prized knives to slowly and carefully skin Pricey. She was so skilled that she removed the skin in one giant piece. The only piece left on his body was around the scar that she had given him on his chest previously. She even got the skin from around the face, ears, and genitals perfectly. That is some skill. That was one of the things that I found so fascinating when I did my couple of shifts at the slaughterhouse was that how easily the skin just peels off. Oh, I don't want to yeah. know that. It was removed so meticulously that the skin was able to be re-sewn to his body post-mortem. Oh. Yeah. I'm not sure why they did that, but they did. Oh, it would just be out of respect, I, I think. So. Yeah. She hung the skin up on meat hooks and continued with her plan. Catherine skillfully decapitated Pricey and set his head in a pot with some vegetables and began cooking it. Oh, it's like head cheese. Head oh. stew, because she added the vegetables and stuff in there. Oh. The pot and its contents would still be warm when the police would discover it. 
No way. Next, she carved steaks out of his buttocks area and cooked those in the oven. I actually found court documents on this one and it didn't say how many steaks Steaks, on the, because it was a summary that I had found and it didn't say exactly how many, but I had heard five steaks. She prepared and cooked vegetables to go with the steaks. Once ready, Catherine filled two plates with a human steak each and vegetables as if she was having a dinner party. She put name placings in front of each plate. She had prepared plates for two of Pricey's children to eat. One of the daughters she got along with better, so there was no plate for her. She wrote vindictive notes to the children and repeatedly stabbed their photos with a knife. So she was still having an episode. She was stabbing their pictures, wrote these horrible notes to them that basically said, if I can't have your father, no one is. And she was going to feed these children. Their father. Their father. Yep. Guess what's for dinner? Your dad. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So his head was cooking in a stew on the stove and she had these plates set of steak and vegetables, like potatoes, gravy. And this is at like three in the morning. We're not sure exactly what time she was doing it, but yeah, this is all before morning. Yeah. This is all through the night. All we know for sure is that she had taken out the money at 2.30 a.m. Well, she needed some cooking supplies. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe she buried it somewhere. Just so bizarre. Kind of speaks to her frame of mind at the time then. Oh, she was out of it. Yeah. She's probably humming in the kitchen. With her apron on. Yeah. His skin hanging on the meat hooks, his body there that has been skinned and no head. And then she's cooking up this stuff and preparing it for his children. How awful for whoever finds it. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that. Oh, I keep saying that. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. (laughs) Catherine tried to feed one of the steaks to the dog. It was found in the backyard along with a plate of food that they suspected Catherine may have tried to eat herself. But she couldn't do it. They didn't say how much was eaten, just that they suspected that she had tried to eat it herself. Maybe so pricey would always be with her. Oh, that is disturbing. Catherine wrote a nasty note and set it along with a picture of pricey on top of his skinless, mutilated, and staged body. The note she was, staged it? She did. Yeah, I didn't have this in my notes, but what she did is she put his arm over a giant pot bottle and crossed his legs, which apparently was supposed to be a sign of disrespect. And I'm not really sure why that was, and that's why I hadn't put it in my notes. Oh. But yes, she staged the body that way. The note was bloodstained and contains bits of flesh on it. Oh, that's so gross. Mm-hmm. When satisfied with her work, Catherine took a shower, put on clean clothes, and then consumed a bunch of pills and passed out on the bed. They were her prescribed nerve tablets and Pricey's blood pressure pills. So she was trying to overdose. She was trying to appear that she was. Oh, so she didn't mean to. Hmm. She wants to appear mad, remember? But she told her one daughter that she was going to commit suicide. Right. But it wasn't enough pills to kill her. Okay. Yeah. Maybe she just miscalculated. Maybe. I don't know. She's pretty calculated. (laughs) So at 6 a.m. the next day, March 1st, 2000, a neighbor noticed that Pricey's truck was still in his driveway. When his boss noticed that Pricey wasn't at work yet that morning, he sent a worker to go and check on him. He listened to what Pricey had said because Pricey was usually the first one to work. And so they were worried. Oh, no. This poor person. Don't go. I know. The neighbor and co-worker noticed blood on the front door. They tried knocking on Pricey's bedroom window, but there was no answer. So they alerted police. Police arrived at 8 o'clock a.m. and were not prepared for what they were about to find. Upon entering the residence, they noticed a sheet hanging in the doorway to the lounge. One of the officers used his arm to move it out of the way. He felt something cold and wet on his arm and looked down to discover that blood was smeared all along his arm. It didn't take them long to realize that the thing that they thought was a sheet was in fact Pricey's skin. No! Yeah, they said it took a minute to actually realize what that was. The thought wouldn't even have entered your mind and so your brain's going to go to the first thing like just association of what you thought it could be, right? Yeah, they thought it was a sheet or a piece of fabric and so he moves it with his arm to get it out of the way and it's all cold and wet and he looks down and sees blood on his arm. Gross! Like talk about trauma. Yeah, that grossed me right out that part. Blood was all over the house. And where Pricey's mutilated body lay, there was a one by two meter area of pooled blood. It wasn't yet fully congealed and was only dried around the edges. A butcher's still was found on a lounge chair next to his body, suggesting that Catherine sharpened her blades as she worked. There was also a sharpening stone on a bench by the kitchen sink that had clearly been used. Catherine was found on the bed and sent to the hospital. It didn't take the coppers long, however, to piece things together and arrest her for Pricey's murder. One of the officers later interviewed stated that he suffered a mental breakdown after investigating this horrific crime and many officers had to take stress leave afterwards. Oh, I believe it. I don't know how you would live with those images in your head. One of them even went vegetarian for a while, for like months after. Oh. Could not eat a piece of meat. I may have to go vegetarian after this one. Yeah. Well, can you imagine? Like they lift up the lid of the pot and there's his skinned head in that pot. 
No, I can't even imagine. It's beyond horrific what they would have discovered. Oh, that is awful. Yeah. It would even later prove challenging to find jury members for her October 2001 trial who were willing to hear and see such gruesome details of the murder. The judge wanted to give the prospects the option to opt out, and many did. Oh, good for them, because again, after seeing all those details, I'm sure that they would have had some traumatic stress over it. Oh, absolutely. So I thought that was really good on the judge. Yeah. To let them know, like, you're going to be seeing videos of the house, you're going to be seeing pictures, all this stuff, like, can you handle it? And some of them were like, nope. Not for me. Catherine tried to act insane and professed that she couldn't remember any details, and she would act out crazily in the court, like screaming and having these wild fits. So how did they know she was acting? Well, she'd be fine one minute, and then she'd be crazy the next. But she had told her brother that she was going to do this, remember? And so her brother ratted her out and testified that she told him that this was her plan. And then she smartened up. Oh, and then as soon as she was found out, she went back to acting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, she was acting. She was definitely acting. Tests would prove that Catherine was not suffering from any form of mental illness and was of sound mind when she committed the murder. She gave detailed reports on some of the events that night and performed tasks that required her to have a steady hand to be alert and of a sound mind, particularly the skinning and driving to get the money. So very different than Michael Dennis, who like had a complete split with reality and everything was in black and white and lost all of his senses. She still had her senses about her. Oh, absolutely. They said if she was in that kind of a psychotic episode or that kind of insane episode, she wouldn't have been able to skin him the way that she did. That required a steady hand. Prosecutors would argue that even if she didn't remember parts, it didn't change how horrendous the acts that she committed were. Dr. Delaforce, a psychiatrist called in the Crown case, interviewed Catherine for a combined total of over nine hours. He discovered her love for a video that police had seized from her house where a person was murdered, beheaded, skinned, and hung by meat hooks. It was almost like she tried to copy it. He determined that her malicious actions throughout her life were prompted by the need to pay back those who wronged her. She had violent fantasies and he believed that the murder of John Price was premeditated and not an insane episode. She thoroughly enjoyed doing what she did to her victims. It pleasured her. Oh, that is so disturbing. He diagnosed her with a borderline personality disorder, but stated that this did not make her unresponsible for her actions. He said, quote, what she did on that night was part of her personality, her nature, herself, but is not a feature of borderline personality disorder. It is not even significantly connected. So basically, she knew right from wrong. Mm-hmm. Dr. Milton, another doctor called to evaluate Catherine, said this, quote, The problem is not that she did not know it was wrong to do such things, but that she did not care about doing them. Callousness is not an absence of knowledge or what is right or wrong. Ms. Knight did not lack ability to control herself. I am of the view that Ms. Knight had the ability to control herself at the time she killed Mr. Price. She could have decided not to kill him. I do not believe her ability to control herself was impaired. He continued to say, quote, Miss Knight's personality characteristics are well established and are unlikely to change by the intervention of doctors or psychologists. A view expressed at least 25 years ago, Ms. Knight will retain a capacity for violence and for being affronted by any challenge to a relationship, and she will continue to feel entitled to express herself in any way she deems appropriate, violent or otherwise, to gratify her feelings. There is a particular concern about John Price's children and other members of his family. So for sure she has some mental health issues, but that's not why. She knew she was doing wrong and she had the ability to stop herself to not do it. And there expecting that she'll do it again if they let her out again absolutely 100 Mm percent. not if it's just when and you made a comment about um the same kind of conclusion that they reached 25 years ago so that she was unlikely to change by the intervention of doctors or psychologists a view that was expressed 25 years ago so even today psychologists are starting to realize that a lot of psychopaths with bloodlust are beyond help that's right. They can't actually be rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's saying it's not. Okay. We don't believe the same thing we believed 25 years ago. We don't believe that any kind of medical help is going to fix her. Right. It's right. going to heal her or help her. Okay. Thanks for clarifying yeah. that. Dr. Milton pointed out that his opinion was supported by a number of factors. So I'm just going to yeah. quickly just read out those factors without going into them into detail. So A, the nature of the offense. B, the acts already committed against Mr. Price and others. Because this wasn't her first time abusing him. Not her first rodeo, that's for sure. C, that the prisoner's behavior in the past demonstrated that retribution would be likely without the normal limits or restraints that ordinary people impose on themselves. D, the prisoner's feeling of being entitled to do things which are inherent in relation to other people. 
her wants outweigh another person's wants or needs. Yeah, or their personal rights, Yeah, right? E, the prisoner's absence of guilt and shame. She had neither of those things. No remorse. Nope. F, an underlying hostility to the male sex on the part of the prisoner. G, the tendency of the prisoner to blame others for what she does rather than being prepared to accept that her actions are wrong. And finally, H, the satisfaction derived by the prisoner from committing quite cruel acts. And she did. She loved it. Yeah. And at first, her working at the slaughterhouse was filling that was need. fulfilling that enough yeah, until she felt wronged by these men in her life, and then had that to wasn't take it. enough. Yeah, and she had gone on disability leave for a while, so there was a point in time I hadn't included this, but there was a point in time where she wasn't working. Oh, and so I wonder if her behaviors got worse during that time because she wasn't having an outlet. Right. Absolutely, was, they would have. Yeah. It was clearly determined that Catherine was an extreme danger to others and would not be a candidate for successful rehabilitation. The judge said, quote, The prisoner showed no mercy whatsoever to Mr. Price. The last minutes of his life must have been a time of abject terror for him, as they were a time of utter enjoyment for her. At no time during the hearing or prior thereto did the prisoner express any regret for what she had done or any remorse for having done it, not even through the surrogacy of counsel. Her attitude in that regard is consistent with her general approach to the many acts of violence which she had engaged in against her various partners, namely, quote, they deserved it. In addition, the prisoner's history of violence, together with her flawed personality, caused me to conclude, along with Dr. Milton and other psychiatrists called in the case, that she is without a doubt a very dangerous person and likely, if released into the community, to commit further acts of serious violence, including even murder against those who cross her, particularly males. A crime of the kind committed by the prisoner calls for the maximum penalty the law empowers the court to impose. Dun, dun, dun. The death penalty. <laughs> you would think, but... Oh, no? No. The judge continued to state... Oh, you said life imprisonment. Yeah. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Scratch that. <laughs> I remember now. Yeah. <laughs> the judge continued to state, quote, The only appropriate penalty for the prisoner is life imprisonment, and that parole should never be considered for her. The prisoner should never be released. Catherine Mary Knight, you have pled guilty and have been convicted of the murders of John Charles Thomas Price at Aberdeen in the state of New South Wales on or about the 29th of February 2000. In respect of that crime, I sentence you to imprisonment for life. I'm curious. You said that they were doing a jury selection, but she then pled guilty? Sorry, did I miss that part? She did plead guilty. They started the trial and then oh, she pled okay. guilty. She was trying to say she was insane and all that kind of stuff. That's Maybe okay. I missed that that's line in my notes. Meant, but... No, but that's what you meant by once her brother ratted her out, yeah, the she changed up. her tune. Yeah. And so, so that's did... when she yeah. pled guilty. Yeah. Sorry if I missed that. Yeah, she did plead guilty. Okay. So Catherine was the very first female to receive the sentence of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole in Australia. And to this day, she continues to reside at the Silverwater Women's Correctional Center in New South Wales. Catherine says she is happy in prison and finally feels safe. What? Which kind of goes back to your earlier comment about how when you don't feel safe, how you lash out. Yeah. And so, yeah, she talks about how even like she doesn't want her sister to visit her. Like, no, just leave me here. I'm good. One of Pricey's daughters says that she can't feel hatred towards Catherine, which is a good thing that she gets from her dad. He would always tell his daughter to, quote, just be happy. And that is the fair dinkum or honest truth. <laughs> fair dinkum. Fair dinkum. I'm going to start using that. And that is the fair dinkum or honest truth about the purely evil, violent, unremorseful, and disturbed psychopath dirtbag, Catherine Knight. What a dirtbag. Yeah. Crazy, right? So disturbing. Yeah, our husbands think they have it bad with us. <laughs> I'm going to read this as a bedtime story to mine. <laughs> but oh. if you enjoyed this case, you're going to want to keep tuning in because my next case is this case elevated. No way. Yeah. I don't know how you could go elevated from that. It's crazy. It goes even further and then has the most shocking twist of all. Oh, no. Okay. Can't wait. So that'll be in two weeks. Two so hopefully weeks. everyone will tune back in. But Melissa has a really interesting case for next week, which will actually air on Remembrance Day. That's right. We're going to cover a nurse case. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> Nurses who kill. <laughs> this is a perfect case for her to cover. Yeah. And I don't know any of the details, so I'll be learning about it as you guys do. So much fun. So we hope you check us back out next week. And thank you so much for joining us today. All you blokes and Sheilas out there, have a great week. And thanks for being our mates and listening to us every week. See you later. Bye.
<laughs> All you little dingoes out there. <laughs> Not ding-dongs, but... <laughs> or ding-a-lings. <laughs> Today, I'm going to take you on a trip down out of... Okay, where are we? Awful. 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 Cutting up awful, which is... <laughs> when you said awful, I was like, oh, is that one of those slangs you were talking about? <laughs> no. <laughs> she was following in her father's footsteps. No rough play. And then later, dun dun dun. <laughs> you should see Melissa's face. She's, I made her speechless. It's a miracle. <laughs> what? The following pronunciation is brought to you by pronunciation. Who cares? He should have got out while he could. Save a horse, ride a cowboy. <laughs> That's Catherine's theme song. Seriously. Someone would pick that over a menage a trois. <laughs> That's not even a word. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh, oh shoot. That's right. Oh man. <laughs> don't be a dirtbag, but do be a root rat. <laughs> but don't be a bludger, because they're lazy. <laughs> Bye. We'll see you next time. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, uh-huh. thanks. Bye. Hi. This is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.